Hello, I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at the HFMA, and you're listening to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. In this episode, we catch up with Sanjay Agrawal, Consultant in Respiratory Medicine and Intensive Care at University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust. Sanjay has kindly spoken to us over a number of weeks, documenting the preparation for COVID-19 at his trust and the subsequent reality of dealing with it. As infection rates and deaths thankfully begin to fall, Sanjay turns his attention to the future. What impact has COVID-19 had on other services? How do we encourage the public to seek the care that they need? And what have we learned for how we do things in the future? Hello, Sanjay. Thank you for talking to us again today. Hi, Sarah. Um, Could you give us an update on what's been happening for you? I was particularly wondering, um, we're seeing the national trend of decreasing infections and deaths and whether you're seeing that in your area as well. Yes, so in the intensive care unit, in my particular unit, we have two referral sources. We have the national ECMO referrals and there's not been any slowdown in that. So we're still taking, I would say, at least one person a day from around the country on average maybe more I'm not I'm not sure exactly that kind of number and then I would say our in-hospital referrals have slowed down so we're getting two or three a week from within my particular hospital of the three hospitals in the trust so um, the bit that slowed down is the in-house referrals Um, So that's good news, actually. Um, But uh, we're still, unfortunately, occupying um, an expanded uh, capacity and footprint. Uh, So we're still having to operate in the same way we have in the past um, three to four weeks. Um, And having taken over the paediatric intensive care unit, we still have their beds and their work has been displaced to other centres and the other hospital in our trust. Um, So uh, I would say, yeah, the the trajectory is... um, as you would expect, um, but um, my particularly, uh, particular speciality, we're going to be lagging behind in terms of being able to shrink our bed base back to where it was, probably, I would imagine, for at least another month. Okay. Some of the figures that we're seeing where it's showing um, percentage capacity um, obviously aren't taking into account the fact that the capacity is much bigger than it normally would be. Yeah, yes, that's right. So to create the, I think I was watching the um, the news brief from Downing Street the other day, and it said there were three three thousand two hundred intensive care beds that were um, spare, if you like. I think um, you just got to um, understand that's only because we've cancelled all other activity, pretty much in terms of elective surgery and uh, people are in lockdown so not having the road traffic accidents or the other things that might normally fill our ITU beds so um, yes there is spare capacity of the capacity that we've created uh, rather than uh, you know intensive care units being empty far from it yeah so one of the things I was wondering was about uh, how many staff have got involved with the treatment of COVID-19 has everybody got involved in some way or have there been some staff who've been kept well away from COVID and have only been working in other areas? So just like well we are the general public too so there'll be people who work in the NHS who are you know let's say frontline clinicians, nurses, doctors, therapists, pharmacists who may have been shielded uh, because they have chronic um, ill health and be on the list of shielded uh, people and um, 
And so, yes, it's a, but they will nonetheless have been playing a role. Um, also, some hospitals have deliberately kept people, for instance, over 60 uh, away from doing frontline tasks, whereas they may otherwise have been, so doing clinics or surgery or anaesthetics or whatever. Um, so, so those uh, people, uh, many of them will have had other tasks assigned to them. Um, and there are some people, though, who are just at home being shielded because there isn't another task that they can uh, do usefully. Uh, so there'll be a whole spectrum, I would imagine. Mm. And I was thinking about um, whether some wards are being kept COVID free, obviously, where they can. And maybe and the staff who work in those wards would stay in that area and not sort of rotate through the COVID treatment. Yeah, so I, I, I think that every type of service whether you're you know a surgical service or a non-surgical obstetric um, you know will be thinking about exactly that at the moment so how can they create a clean area to do that you have to screen patients before they come into the hospital um, and uh, be happy that your staff are um, not infected now as you know uh, there will be patients and staff who have no symptoms Yet, if you were to do a throat swab, some of those are going to test positive. Um, so the, the worry, of course, is that there'll always be patients and staff who might be asymptomatic and infected and infectious to other people working in potential clean areas going forward. And so mm-hmm. how we minimise the risk of transmission in that in that scenario, of course, is tricky. But all we can do is all we can do. So we can we can screen people, we can do swabs. And if they're negative, treat them as negative, but still be very careful with uh, using PPE and appropriately and um, all measures to reduce the risk of transmission between staff, between staff and patients and between patients. Uh, But this is the big problem, of course, or the big issue uh, with um, restarting elective services that everyone's going to face so for instance in one of my specialities uh, within respiratory medicine we do bronchoscopy camera tests of the lung which of course are aerosol generating so we're having to screen patients uh, two or three days before they're listed to do the procedure Uh, and we usually do the procedure uh, because of the risk that the patient may have lung cancer um, so we, we need it's a necessary procedure. We can't postpone these procedures. So that's what we're going to have to do moving forward, probably indefinitely. So for all services, elective services, probably, and GP services and community services, we've got to get into a system whereby there is rapid testing for um, patients and staff to try and keep clean areas clean. So that was a very long winded um, answer to your question but I think that's what we're all going to have to do so it is going to introduce a new step into patient care uh, you know in the past people were MRSA tested for instance before elective surgery this is just another test we're going to need to do uh, but we're going to need to do it within a few days of the planned procedure not weeks before yeah which leads me nicely on to uh, my next question which is around cancer and I guess specifically lung cancer in in your case um whether you've seen a drop in diagnoses and referrals because people aren't seeking the care. I mean, we, we've heard there's been quite a big drop nationally in cancer diagnoses, which may well be building a, f- a problem for the future. 
For sure, there's there's no doubt about that. So we've definitely seen a reduction in referrals. So, you know, as you know, um, there's a two-week wait system uh, and that's where GPs come across patients who may have symptoms. Certainly in the lung cancer service of uh, of the referrals made through the two-week wait lung cancer pathway, in the end, about a third of patients actually have lung cancer and, and two-thirds don't. So the drop-off in referrals that we're seeing we are going to be missing some real cases of lung cancer, but equally there'll be some cases who, who never had it to begin with. But of those people who did have lung cancer, where their treatment is uh, going to be uh, delayed, uh, for some of them it, it is going to have an impact. Um, and, and I'm sure that's perhaps going to be the case for other um, cancer sites, be it you know urology or breast cancer or abdominal um, you know organ Cancer, so it, it is an issue uh, and it will mean that people might present later, which may then affect the type of treatment that they can have. So there are knock-on effects. But we're seeing this also in non-cancer specialities. So for instance, some of my card, um, colleagues in cardiology, they feel they're now seeing people who are presenting later after a heart attack, which means that because the patients have not had an intervention, they're more likely to have developed heart failure and other complications of the heart attack. So I would imagine this is going to be a, a recurring theme across hospital specialities. And does that theme continue to appointments which may well be going ahead still, but people just aren't attending because they either think it's cancelled or just aren't confident in it to come? Yeah, so we've got sort of different groups of patients. So uh, certainly my experience with phoning patients is they've been very happy with a telephone appointment. At the start of all this, they were completely uh, in agreement that they didn't want to attend hospital and um, were, were, as I say, happy to do the virtual consultations. Now, going forward as lockdown um, eases uh, and people feel possibly a little bit safer because the government have given permission for people to leave their homes and to attend appointments. It might be that people are more willing to come. So before we didn't have to persuade people not to come. They just didn't want to come. I would imagine going forward, um, there'll be some people who now definitely want to and need to come and we will do everything we can to facilitate that. There'll be some people who still want to steer well clear. And remember, some people are being shielded for 12 weeks. So even if the lockdown eases in the next couple of weeks, uh, they're still in this sort of shielding period. Um, so I think we'll gradually ratchet up um, face-to-face appointments for those people who need it and those people who want to. Mm. So what do you think we need to be doing to help build that confidence for people to come into the hospitals again and seek the care they need? Yeah, I think the uh, public health messaging. So I think you you you'll have seen the um uh, the, the news feed on the BBC from Public Health England saying that people should seek medical help if you know they have um, symptoms that are, you know non-covid related. And uh, um, that weekend, after that message went out, we we definitely saw a rise in our admissions to our um, medical um, respiratory assessment area in my particular hospital. So I think these public messages are getting out. Um, so I don't think people will need, hopefully, too much encouragement um, to to then start, you know, feeling a bit safer uh, coming to hospital appointments or seeing their GPs. I'm hoping. So just going back to COVID-19, we first started talking and recording these podcasts in 
middle of March. And obviously now we're into May. And I'm just wondering how your view of COVID-19 has changed from when we first spoke and you were thinking about it and getting prepared to what you now know and, and what you've learned on the way through. Yeah, I think I think what I've learned is uh, A, about the disease, obviously, and how it um, behaves. Uh, so, you know, some people get better, some people have persistent symptoms, some people become critically ill and sadly a lot of people succumb to it. So I've learned about, you know, the disease and, and, and how it works. I've also learned about, um, I suppose, some some bigger system things about stopping services uh, to make capacity. And I've found that the health service and certainly the hospital sector and I'm sure primary care sector has been really good at responding rapidly uh, to the threat uh, I've learned that um, uh, starting services is much harder than I thought. And we may, I suppose, talk about that a little bit more. Um, I've learned about individuals, so fatigue. I would say this past week, um, whereas everybody was running on adrenaline at the beginning, of course, people were anxious and nervous, but they, um, the ones who um, were uh, you know, running the services that I'm involved with were probably running on adrenaline and 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 just wanted to get on and and do it. But I think now I've I've seen in this past week or so people starting to get a bit of fatigue now. I think you know the adrenaline can take you so far, um, and I've heard a few people saying how tired they are. They're just fed up. They wish it was all over, <laughs> and wanting mm. some normality. Um, <clears throat> so I think I've seen that kind of human side of fatigue and exhaustion starting to come in i've not seen burnout yet and i was reading one of um, the medical journals over the weekend and obviously there's a huge risk of burnout going forward so if we don't let you know these fatigued people me included uh, as, as well as many others i'm sure um, adequately rest then then we'll get a problem with burnout so I've seen I've seen the medical side of things change in terms of looking after patients and we've all geared up and now we're gearing up for the next phase of all of this. Um, I've seen individuals um, sort of gear up with adrenaline and now starting to feel um, fatigued. Mm. So you mentioned in that answer that you'd found it more difficult to start services than you expected. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, only um, as uh, some of the stuff we've alluded to. So physically, how do you separate clean from non-screened areas where people are COVID infected or not COVID infected to reduce transmission between patients and healthcare workers. So how do you physically do that? Because the physical plant of your hospital is what it is. You can't just suddenly change that. So how do you make the best use? And usually that will mean a reduction in capacity in some way because you have to take certain areas out of commission uh, potentially whilst you're you're temporarily running a sort of two services so <clears throat> there's there's that that's that difficulty then there's the issue of staff so um as i alluded to uh, some people have been off sick and i know there's rapid testing now for staff which is great with covid symptoms and, and those needing to self-isolate but also there's people who might be sick because of stress they might be sick for other reasons um, I read an article this weekend that, to say that a fifth of healthcare workers uh, are now thinking uh, uh, they're more likely to quit earlier than they ever thought they would previously. Okay. So um, I think, you know, again, there's going to be workforce issues. Yes, there'll be people who want to join the NHS, but there'll be a huge lag period from when they're adequately trained to, to be able to join. Um, so uh, the problem with restarting services is going to be related to build up um, in the pipeline of patients who need treating, um, how you separate out people 
um, patients that is physically into clean and um, non-screened areas um, how do you manage your workforce again you're going to have to sort of double pump or, or use two sets of staff in a in a workforce that's already depleted um, whereas now we have cross-skilling and we've had you know um, staff from other areas of the hospital coming to help us out in intensive care well they're going to have to go back to their areas as their services start up but then we've still got to run our covid intensive care as well as our surgical uh, clean intensive care um, so uh, how are we going to manage that and then of course people will need a break because uh, nobody's taking any annual leave obviously for the last few weeks um, so so they're the sort of problems it's a sort of workforce uh, physical plant uh, and then managing um, the flow of patients in terms of prioritizing uh, who needs to be seen first and, and how we do that so there's there's a number of issues um, to work out and also I suppose the other key, big thing is is that not everybody is going to move at the same speed um, because for a variety of reasons. So, for instance, intensive care, we're going to be stuck with a, a large cohort of patients for quite a while yet, whereas other services could get going now. Um, and so how do you kind of get the timing of all of these things right so all of the system can can get going and one service isn't holding back another service. So ITU might essentially hold back other surgical services because of lack of ITU capacity for their patients. So, you know, we need to think about how we yeah. manage that. So what would you like to see from the finance team and, and other uh, small support functions to help get some, help get the um, services back up on their feet again? Oh, so I think it's that working with that... Um, that that sort of management group for each clinical service so for each clinical services you know there's usually a, a clinician a general manager an hr person and a finance person and they've got to link really clearly at the front line with frontline services and that communication's got to be really tight as it goes up through the organization so you know every hospital will have you know dozens if not hundreds of service lines and it's really the coordination of all of that that's the tricky bit um, and also remembering human factors that, you know, all of the frontline people, um, you know, aren't widgets and uh, they are going to need time um, and understanding that and what that means and having different modelling uh, that has different assumptions to make sure we know what to do if we've only got 80% of our staff versus 60% of our staff versus, you know, 90%. So, I think it's it's um, it's those sort of things, being kind, understanding it's going to take time, getting information directly from the front line, not hearing it third hand through other people, understanding what the needs are with respect to equipment, much of which is depleted and getting the supply chain back up and also gearing up for the autumn uh, because it's very possible we may have a you know a second wave as people ease out of lockdown and there's more community transmission and also you then have the autumn and winter type illnesses um, that normally circulate coming back so this is what i suppose australia is dealing with now it's their winter now plus the pandemic so what are we going to do come autumn um, when when our service normally ends up being busier I think that as lockdown, I would say coming up in the next week or two for people, as we come out of lockdown and services uh, restart or stand up, 
um, as Caroline said last week, it's going to feel strange. It's going to feel strange for all of us as individuals. Um, so as an individual me now, I'm not entirely sure what my job's going to look like a week from now, a month from now, two months from now, four months from now. It's going to change every every few weeks probably. Uh, the organisation's also going to go through a period of change each week, uh, each month. Um, and so I think we've all just got to be cognizant of the fact that um, there are, uh, there's a lot of change that's still going to happen. So although we've gotten into a new normal at the moment, we're going to go into another period of change. And every time you have a period of change, you get new anxieties developing, denial occurring before people move into acceptance. But the cycle of change is just going to be repeated and accelerated and and I think we should all just prepare for the fact that it's going to be this churn. It's not going to be um, a resumption of normal activity like flicking a light switch. Uh, and I think we, it's just being prepared for all of that is sort of my thinking for me personally, for my particular clinical areas, and I think for the health system as a whole. Thank you, Sanjay, for talking to us once again. It's been fascinating as always. So thank you for your time. Okay, brilliant. Okay, thanks ever so much, Sarah. Take care. The HFMA is providing regular podcasts throughout the pandemic covering a range of areas. If there is a particular aspect that you would like to hear about, then please let us know. All of our COVID-19 related briefings, blogs and news articles are openly available on our website, hfma.org.uk. There is no need to be a member to access these, so please tell your colleagues. We have launched a forum where finance colleagues from across the NHS can discuss issues and challenges in a safe space. You can sign up via the link in the network section on our website at hfma.org.uk. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.